Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, August 20th, we are studying Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. This short Old Testament account draws to a climax as Boaz willingly takes up the role of kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth, And through this faithful action, the Lord continues to fulfill his promise to bring the Savior of mankind into the world. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Sam Belts. Pastor Belts serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belts, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Tim. As we get started this morning, Pastor Belts, we're in the last chapter of the book of Ruth. We've seen a lot of themes that have come up that get drawn together in this chapter what do we need to know from the narrative previously going forward into this chapter? Yeah, so I think one of the major uh, one of the major theological themes that jumps out in the uh, book of Ruth definitely has to do with the fact that non-Israelites receive redemption by faith, you know, not by works of the law, not by circumcision, uh, not by any other aspects other than the fact that they are willing to cling to the God of Israel, which is really the, I mean, one of the major overarching themes in the book of Ruth, which is really beautiful and corresponds to other aspects of the Old Testament story as we've been, uh, as we've been reading it, or if you've been reading it sort of in a chronological order, you have this coming out of uh, the time of the judges as Israel's forming in the Holy Land and, uh, you know, this promised place where God is going to deliver them and give them all these good gifts. And it's sort of starts with fits, you know, through the judges and this time of uh, turbulence. And now in this time of Ruth, you see God's continued care and guidance and love and faithfulness to them by uh, delivering them the lineage of David, as a, you know, uh, as we're going to talk about in chapter four, but also here by giving us these uh, continued images like he did in the exile and in different places uh, previous to the spot where uh, non-Israelites are assumed into the larger group of faithful people by their faith, by their fear, love, and trust of this God, who is the God of Israel above all things, uh, which, you know, would culminate in something like what St. Paul would say in Romans chapter 9, if you preached on that recently in the three-year lectionary, that uh, the children of Israel are not children by the flesh, but are children of the promise or children of faith. So that's really one of the major underlying themes that's here. And then, of course, one of the other major underlying themes this year is this whole, uh, especially in chapter 4, is uh, the theme of redemption and what exactly redemption is. You know, as Christians, uh, we generally have a, a, a fairly concrete image of redemption uh, as it's uh, depicted for us in the personal work of Jesus on the cross. However, here in Ruth, you get a little bit more of a nuanced perspective or a, a little bit of a nuanced account about what redemption looks like as a daily activity or as a, as a cultural activity for the early Israelites, which is one of the more fascinating sort of historical uh, aspects of this book and how redemption isn't always a matter of some sort of bloody sacrifice as we're normally used to thinking about it in the terms of Jesus. But here in uh, uh, Ruth, as we're going to talk about it, redemption is actually this uh, aspect of the word or this aspect of uh, promise, you know, or something like that, which is a really, really heavily uh, emphasized here in the last chapter of Ruth. So those are at least two of the major things uh, that we are probably need to be aware of as we're reading through the entire narrative of Ruth, but especially this last chapter. 
the fact that Ruth is a Moabitess, it really does stand out, particularly when you put the book of Ruth in its context in the days when the judges ruled, as the book yeah, starts. Yeah, that's right. And in the book of Judges, which is what we just finished studying here on Sharper Iron, you see at large in the nation of Israel unfaithfulness right. where they're constantly falling into idolatry. You just have this cycle over and over again, yep. and it gets worse every time. It's it's yep. actually not a, a cycle as much as it is a downward spiral. And, and who's always oppressing them? It is these foreign nations that the Lord uses to discipline his people. And That's so then right. at the same time, you get this nice little account here in, in the book of Ruth where Everything is reversed, where now it is a foreigner who proves herself faithful to the God of Israel and ends up incorporated into Israel. And there's also this, this just very nice thing to see that not everybody in Israel has entirely gone off the rails. There are faithful right. families like the family of Elimelech, the family of Boaz, who do retain this faith in the God of Israel. And it, it's just such a wonderful foil to see how even as everybody in Israel seems to be just entirely unfaithful the Lord still provides himself a, a faithful family here. Right. It's the, the, the similar cry of Elijah, right? Our, everybody's bowed the knee to Baal. And God's like, quit being so selfish. Uh, quit, quit, quit only focusing on yourself and realize that I'm faithful. Uh, and I've reserved 7,000 for that haven't been to the knee, you know, like here, the, 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 uh, the sinner in us wants to see ourselves as the only faithful people, right? Or the sinner in us wants to believe that there isn't anybody as faithful as me. And then we come into a contact with uh, something like Ruth, which this uh, simple, humble confession of faith by this woman who's had such a, a, a tragic existence, you know, uh, losing her husband and all these various things and, you know, being widowed, you know, we can probably go on about the the cultural aspects of being a widow in unmarried widows and old widows and young widows in the life of Israel and just generally in the, in the, the Sinai Peninsula. It's not a very great existence, uh, but, uh, you know, that God's faithfulness too. In, uh, and that's maybe another theme that Lutherans kind of shy away from, but uh, the fact that God's hand, you know, we, we don't like the word providence too much because it sounds too reformed or Calvinistic, but there really is an, another major aspect of God just here guiding the history of people, right, uh, into particular places and through particular ways, right, that he has this overarching care through the time of the judges, even though it looks like everything's falling apart, God makes sure it holds together. Even though for Ruth, it seems like everything is falling apart for her and Naomi, God holds it together, right, through this series of just gent like occasional circumstances on a threshing floor and in different places where you don't expect God to do anything really great, and it's in these places where he's uh, giving the progeny towards the, the towards David and finally the Christ, right? So it's yeah, it's well, just really beautiful. It's beautiful. In it, that way. it really is, and I think that that connection that you made there is the key for us as Lutherans who maybe are a bit gun shy when it comes to talking about the providence of of God. We shouldn't be because it's it's no. there in the scriptures. But right. here, here you definitely see how the providence of God is working, not just sort of not only for the needs of the body, but also for the needs of, of the ultimate redemption that comes in Jesus Christ. Because that's, that's right. where the book of Ruth really fits into all this. It's it's not just, and we've said this previously, it's not just a nice story of, yep. of you know, someone who is hopeless and, you know, they get married and live happily ever after. That's right. This is the account of the seed, the promised seed from Genesis chapter three, how the Lord preserves that and does work through these 
completely unexpected ways to bring the promised seed into the world. Who would have thought that a Moabitess ends up in the genealogy of King David and ultimately the greater David, our Lord Jesus Christ? How to just seeing the providence connected together with the the story of salvation, I think is a, a really important thing we should hold on to for the book of Ruth. Yeah, and I think it is. I think that's definitely true. And I think another important aspect of that that goes along with that is to show that it is like after you have a scene like the exile and the separating of the waters of the Red Sea and the provision of Israel in the in the wilderness with manna and quail and the uh, thunderstorms and lightning on the mountain of Sinai with the commandments and all these different interactions, it can be really uh, it can be really compelling for people to think that God's providence or his person or his work only happens in these gigantic, miraculous, huge displays. And so many people get caught up looking for these things, right? I don't know how many times I've heard people that have, that have relayed to me, they need some sign from God. They need some, some big event to really to pin their faith down. You know, all these sorts of things are, are general things that, that I've heard people say, you know, not a lot of people, but you know, when you hear them, you think, is that is that something we should be waiting for? And then here in Ruth, it's the mundane, right? It is the it is this gritty, nitty nitty gritty, tragic story about widows e- eking out a life on the uh, on the edges of the fields, the gleaning of the edges of the fields. It's the overlook of a of a benevolent man, Boaz, to the to the daily turmoil of this poor woman. You know, and and the the happenstance manipulations of this would be former mother in law, now constant mother, you know, to get this lady who's committed herself to her to get married to another guy so she can have a happy life, you know. Like you like you said, it's not just a happy story, it's the fact that God is at work in the mundane, right? That God is at work in the these small details of the human existence to bring about this greater uh, uh, this greater proclamation of the gospel, right? And uh, this is good news for people like you and me because I don't have a lot of exciting stuff that happens in my life, right? I don't, right? My life is pretty boring. I've got five kids. I change a lot of diapers, right? I have to clean a lot of sand. My, for some reason, my kids really like throwing all the ashes out of the smoker that I have on each other, right? The first thing they do in the morning, like their little you know, little Indian babies, I don't know, out in the middle of somewhere, just ashing themselves up for a hunting spree. Like I've got to clean ash out of my pipes all the time because it cakes up. Right. And, uh, you know, the idea that God only works through these magnificently large, miraculous events on mountaintops or splitting seas open, it doesn't, it, that, that actually is very, very, uh, not comforting to me. Right. What's comforting to me is hearing a story about Ruth where God is actually massaging, history in order to bring about something magnificent. And it makes what I do on a daily basis when I feed my children and when I read them the scriptures and when I, uh, even if I just go to the zoo with them and, you know, one of the things that we work on a lot in my house is mom and dad apologizing to the kids for stuff when we lose our temper and the kids apologizing to mom and dad, having a, a, a culture in my family that orients around confession and absolution, right? Like that is not a frilly, huge miraculous thing from all from all external metrics right but when a father can apologize to a son and a son can forgive the father right when the son can forgive a daughter you know the son can forgive the sister and that this is a a regular part of the daily life that's the beauty of how god ordains and orders history 
right, is so that Christians are rooted in confession and absolution, rooted in the word, rooted in the beauty of the forgiveness of sins, rooted in the rooted in the promise, which is really the beauty of Ruth on a base on a base level, is that all of these small details, all of these little you know, occurrences, all of these, you know, uh, things that you would normally push aside are the exact way that the God of Israel has chosen to display his magnificence and his power, right? And it lines up beautifully in that case with like Mary and Joseph in the manger, right? Uh, if you wanted to make those sorts of moves, right? It lines up perfectly with the person of Jesus who didn't have lightning coming out of his fingers and, you know, the, the halo of fire around his head who was easily recognizable, but, you know, his people, his people despised him. They rejected him. They killed him because he just looked like some Jewish guy from Nazareth, right? He didn't look like anything special. So I'm, I, I love all of that, Pastor Belts. And I'm going to try to respond without getting on a soapbox here, because I, I think this has a lot to say to us as Christians living in the United States of America right now, who tend to focus our eyes on the picture of, of the judges. So the picture of the judges is unfaithfulness at large. And we look at our world on a large scale, and we get tempted to focus our eyes there, looking for, as you were saying, some big miraculous sign that's going to fix everything. Like, right. I mean, just some big thing that's going to fix everything on a large scale. And and in so doing that, what I think we're very tempted to do is to take our eyes off of the mundane, the, the things that you were talking about, the way that we live as Christians, the way that we share Christian faith within our own families. And and if we do that, if we keep our eyes on that it's not that the big picture is not important, but if, if we look for some sort of huge miraculous sign from God that's going to make America great again, then we're going to miss all those mundane things that happen in our family where we can actually have a really big impact in ways that we may never see. You know, I don't know. I don't know how far Ruth and Naomi actually got to see in terms of these generations we're going to going to see. Right. You know, I mean, did they ever meet David and, and know what he did? No, uh, but but look at what the Lord did through their simple, mundane faithfulness in just their day-to-day interactions. And I, I think there's great application for us as Christians today in the way that we would live out our lives. Yeah, and I think you're right. And I, and I do want to offer a bit of a correction. It's not that we focus on the mundane. It's that we focus on the word and the promise, mm-hmm. right? That's what, that's what Ruth and Naomi had. That's what yeah. Boaz had. They, didn't, they, weren't, uh, they weren't occupied with the mundane. It wasn't that that was what they were doing. They were occupied with the promise, right? They were occupied with the faithfulness of God. They had seen him work throughout the time of the judges. They had reserved for themselves the promises that God had given. So for us as Christians, one of the great traps, one of the great sins that we commit is to take our eyes off Jesus, right? It's to take our eyes off this thing, this beautiful thing that's been given, right? It's to take our eyes off our baptisms. It's to take our eyes off the Lord's Supper. It's to take our eyes off it's to take our eyes off the, the centrality of confession and absolution as, as the epitome of Christian existence, right? That we can move beyond these things, that we must pursue other, that we must pursue other ventures, that we must develop our virtues in other arenas or however you want to, whatever you want to categorize this as, that we must be, that we must be working towards higher goals. The, the, the thing about Ruth is the same thing for most of us, is that the majority of our lives are not going to be lives that are in the pursuit of higher goals, Right. Or in the pursuit of the miraculous or the pursuit of the big. Right. My focus is on Jesus Christ and his word and his promises. And what that allows me to do is it allows me to have the freedom to be content and love exactly what I've been given in my place. Right. So I wake up in the morning and I don't resent the fact that I wake up 
to a two-year-old daughter at six o'clock in the morning, you know, that I have to potty train, right? I wake up and I think, these are my children who have been given to me by God as a good gift. And today I get to preach to them and teach to them. And we get to do, uh, we get to work in my garden. And tonight I'll put them to bed and I'll kiss them on their heads after we say our prayers and our devotions and eat a meal together, right? Like it allows me the freedom to love everything about what I've been given in my place. And that's what Ruth, I mean, that's really an excellent thing that Ruth uh, displays with Naomi, right? She doesn't despise her mother-in-law after everything's fallen apart. She, she says, you have been given to me. God has put me in with you. You have been put here with me with, by God. Like the circumstances of this life aren't going to change that. You know, I am sticking with you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people, right? Her, she saw what was right in front of her. And the, the, the fervency of the promise that God had given to her in the short amount of time that she had been a part of that household was something that she clung on to and that she held on to for the sake of Naomi as well, but also for herself. And so she was able to love Naomi, despising her own future, right? The humility to be able to do that, right? Which was everything Naomi was urging her towards. Go find a husband. Go be with your people. Go, go have a life again. You know, I don't have anything for you. You're not going to have an easy life. You're going to have a hard life. You know, we're going to be widows and all this sort of stuff, right? And uh, Naomi and, and, and Ruth clung to the promise in the midst of all of that uh, darkness about her future because she knew what David would later know as he wrote in Psalm 105 or Psalm 119 verse 105, which is the word of the Lord is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? The promises of God are there even when everything else gets dark. And so uh, that's what, you know, in the present day, and I think there is something to, you know, there's also, there's the assertion of this sort of manifest destiny ideal behind a lot of American Christianity and all this sort of thing. But I think there's also something cutting the other way through all this COVID stuff and with everything that's going on which is that more and more people are coming into contact with the fact that they are limited in their scope, their agency is bound, and they are becoming more and more content with what they have been given by God on a daily basis because a lot of the extracurriculars have been taken away from them uh, by, by, you know, by the force and the will of God in this, in this instance. And you know, so there is something cutting the other way uh, with all this, there's some backspin to this, which I've experienced in my own life. And I have members of my congregation, which is experienced, which is like, you know, we spent this entire summer with each other, right? There wasn't ball, there wasn't family vacations. There wasn't this other stuff to distract us. We came to church. We didn't go to do anything else. We came to church and we went home. We talked about your sermon pastor. And I was like, that's great. Like that's, that's, that sounds fantastic. I said, that sounds like the way God normally works. You know, he's not going to work by making your son an all-star baseball player and showering you with millions of dollars. That's maybe not the trajectory for your life. Maybe the trajectory for your life is you have this pitiful pastor who preaches a good sermon and you go home and you talk about it. And then you write him an email saying, you know, we thought about that sermon. It was pretty good. Like maybe that's how God works to create and sustain faith. I, I actually think that's fairly accurate. So. Right. And I think I appreciate the way you said that, that it is not a focus on the mundane, but it is a focus on the word. And, and that's that's where hopefully that backspin that you're talking about is focusing us in on the word right. and not looking for God to work beyond that word or in that's some right. some way other than the word, Yep. Uh, which I mean, and I, maybe you want to go here just, just briefly. We're, we're going to read do. Ruth at some point, but this is yeah. what the confessions call enthusiasm. Yes, that's right. That the Holy Spirit works not in the preaching of the word, but before the preaching of the word or after the preaching of the word, right? That is, that is complete. It's as heresy. It is an awful heresy that so many people are in the grips of 
that the preaching of the word is the way the Holy Spirit works to create and sustain faith, right? That's, I mean, if you want to get into a confession study, this is why Article 4 of Augsburg is followed by Article 5 of Augsburg, right? Article 4 is this justification that is worked by grace through faith without any merit or worthiness in us. And how do we obtain this faith? By preaching, right? By preaching. Uh, you know, we completely disregard as Lutherans the, the teaching of the Reformed, which hadn't even really come about yet, that that the assurance of faith comes by obedience, right? doesn't come by obedience. The assurance of faith comes by preaching, by the Word. The Holy Spirit works in the Word, Right? What happens after that preaching of the word, we chalk up to the grace of God and hopefully that it bears good fruits by the obedience that comes with faith. But anything that happens for our good happens in the preaching of the word, in in the given gifts that come by the word, not by any other means, which is why we focus so heavily on the sacraments as well as the word, because the sacraments are simply the tangible form of the word of promises you know, that can that can go above and beyond the foils of a pastor who might not have the best abilities in the pulpit or might not really care, right? There can be evil men that occupy those places, but so long as they are giving the gifts of the sacrament, the word is still being proclaimed and preached, right? Mm, right, yeah. yeah. So, so Ruth then ends up being a helpful corrective, hopefully, for that enthusiastic tendency that exists in each one of us. I mean, it is, yeah. when you start to see it, you really do see it everywhere, that this is I the problem. You have to dig deep in Ruth to get there, but I think it's it is definitely there, right? The the only way that Ruth, the only way that this plays out as God has ordained it is by Ruth sticking to the promises mm-hmm. that she has obtained by her marriage uh, into this family, right. right? That's the only way that this has come about, and so you just see this, uh, you know, in a simple, beautiful way that can happen to all of us. That's the way all of us have come into faith, right? The way all of us have come into faith is not by some miraculous event, not by some, no, not by walking on water, not by all, any of the, any of these things that you would think would definitely be a sure sign hmm. that, that, oh, this will be my thing that I hold on to forever. No, it has been because your parents wanted you to get baptized. So they brought you to church when you were little, even when you were in the womb and they made sure you heard the preaching and you were surrounded by it. And they baptized you into it. And then they brought you to Sunday school and then they kept bringing you because baptism is a magic and the word isn't magic and it's not magic, right? It is a promise that is held on to by faith, right? It is a promise that is held on to by faith and a trust. But the one who is giving these promises is the one who controls all time and space, who has sent his son and who has chosen simply by his good grace to bring us into this thing, right? Mm-hmm. To give us this good promise, right? Which is which is exactly where Ruth sits, right? She doesn't deserve any of this. There's no reason why any of this should happen to her, but she received this good gift. It was given to her by simply by grace, right? Out of Out of the blue, and she's going to hold on to it despite everything else that's happened, right? And and this really is, I mean, you know, this is an un, this is definitely an underlying theme. It's not one of the major themes. We're making it major because we're drawing it out. But uh, this does, of course, get to back to the uh, to the underlying theme of redemption and this kinsman redeemer and the goodwill of God through the agency of Boaz for the betterment of Naomi and Ruth. You know, for all these sorts of things, right? And and it gets to one of the one of the other aspects of this last chapter of Ruth which is the fact that, uh, you know, as we've been drawing out, that God works through these mundane things, but he also works through these normal everyday means, which gets right at the basis for our understanding of the sacraments as a whole and sort of the way, you know, one of the underlying elements of our pastoral ministry as compared to other traditions, which is that the pastor's job, right, it's not uh, dependent on the bishops or ordinations or popes or any of these fancy highfalutin structures, right? We are men as pastors who are called out of the congregations 
to serve them, right? We are men who grew up in congregations, who went to Sunday school, who have firm convicted faiths, who have been identified through through the process, through the natural courses of, of the church. And, and now we're in the office because we've been elected to do it. And it's the, sort of the same situation with Boaz, right? He's just a guy, right? He's just a guy. He's a, he's a resident of this area. He's a guy who's come into contact with Ruth and Naomi. He's a guy that's had compassion on them given their situation. And now he's in, now he is the negotiator for them in their ongoing life here, you know, to, to work out this whole dispute, you know, which is gets to this idea of what redemption is and this kinsman redeemer in, in, uh, in Ruth chapter four, which isn't somebody who offers himself as a bloody sacrifice, right? Which, you know, that's perfectly acceptable for Jesus. But here, Boaz is just a guy who has contacts in this area. They meet at the gate, you know, they meet at the city gate, you know, which is sort of the meeting place for all the city council stuff. If you want to use sort of a modern analogy, you know, they're not city hall, but you got a bunch of old guys sitting around drinking their tea or whatever they drink back then, you know, working out the problems of the city, you know, trying to figure out the cistern issues, you know, why we need to dig the cistern a couple of, couple of more feet deep or we're going to run out of water. You know, they're, they're, they're working out all the problems of, of, uh, of the day, you know, for the city, wherever they live. And one of the things, uh, you know, is that they have authority uh, vested in them to handle these sort of land inheritance disputes, apparently, right? And so Boaz goes there as an advocate, right? That's probably one of the closest, uh, this kinsman redeemer uh, thing, you know, if you want to translate this from the Hebrew ga'al, right? It, it, it can mean a couple of different things, but here it really means this like advocate who is there to speak on behalf of of another person of the family who just doesn't have the capabilities or the status to bring this to the elders or whatever the situation is. Maybe, you know, what we, we don't fully know exactly what all this means, but whoever this person is, this redeemer comes on behalf of a relative or somebody that's close to them. And they sort of argue and mediate some sort of a dispute or some sort of an issue on their behalf to, to get some vindication or get some justification for something that's going on. And in Ruth and Naomi's case, it's this land dispute. It's this inheritance. You know, they're going to be without any place to live. They're going to be without any sort of, uh, you know, they're not going to have any prospects moving forward. And Boaz is mobilized by his care and love, you know, uh, for these ladies. And he's mobilized to make, make these moves on their behalf because he's now been sort of bound together to Ruth uh, for, for history, according to God's providence. Right. Hmm. So, and we're going to read that actually in the okay. book of Ruth. <laughs> we're going to do right. that on the other side of the break, though. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, August 20th. We are studying Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. We've got Pastor Sam Belts with us. He serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. 
Pastor Belts, prior to the break, we, we spent plenty of time talking about various themes in the book of Ruth, and we've set the scene here for chapter four. Naomi and Ruth are waiting to see what Boaz is going to do. He has agreed to marry Ruth, but he wants to see what this other kinsman redeemer may say about the matter, one who is nearer than he is. So we pick that account up in Ruth chapter four, verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malin. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. All right, we'll pause there. That's a lot, Pastor Belts. You've set some of this scene before for us on the other side of the break. Just make sure we understand the interaction that happens here between Boaz and this unnamed kinsman redeemer uh, as we go forward into this text. Yeah, right. So we we talked a little bit about this kinsman redeemer and the aspect of the kinsman redeemer and what what this all means in Israel. And apparently, you know, we have a few instances of this in different places, but the majority of the language about the kinsman redeemer really does come from Ruth is the basis for a lot of our imagery here. And so what, what we learn about this is apparently this is some ancient custom, some old custom that goes on among the people of Israel since the time they've come out of Egypt. And maybe during the time when they were in Egypt, maybe this was something that they were doing among themselves in Egypt. We don't really know. But the way that uh, the author here, whoever is uh, giving us this account, you know, the way that we're hearing about it is telling us that this is an ancient custom. The Israelites get together in the gates of the city, which is this place where, you know, they're making these uh, decisions about various aspects of daily life. And uh, this this kinsman redeemer is apparently a, a common or widespread practice among the Israelites. And they uh, they. Uh, have this form of disputes or reconciliations or 
or, uh, you know, uh, wh- whatever we might say. It's, they don't have courts at this point. You know, there's no central courts. There's no Supreme Courts. There's no uh, judges and juries. And so whatever the uh, whatever the dispute would be, if there was an issue with inheritance or if there was an issue of land, which is apparently a, a regular issue in uh, areas during that time, as still it is today, then the decisions would be made in the uh, stead of the or in the in the uh, uh, arena of the gate where all the elders of the city and the head officials or men, the you know, whoever were the ones that were looked to by the populace to be decision makers that had wisdom, that had insight, that had knowledge of the ongoings and who lived here and who lived where, uh, who knew who and who was related to who, these people would get together and make these decisions. And the kinsman redeemer was this person from a family who would go there sort of as this advocate, right, for whatever the family need was or whatever the situation was. And so what we have going on here is actually, you know, Boaz has already identified that there will be a redeemer for this whole thing. There will be somebody that adjudicates the issue for Ruth and Naomi. Uh, we don't really get the identity of who this guy is, but we just know that he's there. And through the process of this discussion that Boaz enters into about, uh, you know, Naomi is trying to sell this land from a relative Elimelech and, you know, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff is going on. And he's asking the Redeemer to be the one to adjudicate this or to, 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 to sort out this whole process of redemption here, because we're, we're not 100% sure, at least I'm not 100% sure, maybe you are, Pastor Apple, about what exactly would happen to the property if it wasn't redeemed by somebody, you know, it could go into a collective, it could be bought by somebody else, perhaps somebody else could step up to to take it for their own, you know, so Boaz's intention here is to make sure that Naomi, as this elder lady, uh, who is a, a part of this society, that she has something for herself, right? That she has something to stand on, something to have a home on, you know, something to exist on, for the remainder of her life, and not just her, as it turns out, you know, it's to keep the not the progeny of her name continuing. It's to keep the 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 name of the dead. You know, this is sort of this recurring theme that Boaz brings up, uh, which will come through Ruth, right? Which is going to happen through the marriage to Ruth, and this seems to be one of the linchpin uh, aspects, of course of the whole debate when Boaz is going back and forth with the Redeemer, you know, the issue of the land is like, yeah, I'll buy the land, I'll redeem that. But then it's like, uh, well, oh, there's, oh, there's the Moabitess, you know, Ruth that comes along with that too. And then this, this kinsman Redeemer is like, well, I can't do that. You know, so it makes you wonder if he's an older guy, you know, if he can't, you know, sort out the whole thing with the, the passing along a progeny or if there's some other legal issue that we're just not informed of because he does give this whole thing about, well, I'm going to lose inheritance if I take this Moabitess on. You know, is this like, what's the penalty here? Why is there a penalty for the taking on of the Moabitess but not not the land? You know, we don't know all the, all the details behind the legal code of Israel during that time. Uh, you know, we don't have all that written out for us. And, you know, Leviticus has happened, but who knows to the extent by which all those uh, aspects of the Hebrew code are still being followed in the days after the judges, as we were talking about earlier. It seems like the days of the judges were sort of like the Wild West of Wyatt Earp. Like there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the days of the judges where the law doesn't seem to have much say or sway over the entire prospect, especially as the days of the judges continue. So, but whatever the case is, this kinsman redeemer gives up, uh, you know, his rights uh, to redemption to Boaz, 
you know, on the basis of the of this sort of leveret marriage idea that the uh, that whoever would marry the wife of the widow, if there hasn't been a conceived child, is the one who takes up responsibility for the continuation of the lineage of this family, right, or the lineage of this person, which now rests on Ruth and whoever Ruth will have as the next husband. So, uh, you know, God is God is at work here, you know, obviously, as we were talking about earlier, through this mundane dispute in a, in a gate, right, through the, dis, dis, the dispute over land, the continuation of the life of these two women, the continuation of the heritage of the name of Elimelech, right, uh, you know, through, through this, you know, this would pass without a blip on the screen of a city council meeting, right? This would pass unencumbered through anybody's thoughts on a daily basis, right? This, this is just general information. And, you know, you see guys making decisions at a gate and you think, well, you know, there's the elders chewing the fat again, right? They're, they're just up to their normal stuff. They're drinking their coffee. They're talking about the cisterns, you know, whatever, whatever they're talking about. And here we, we see God again at work through this, uh, through this, loving act on Boaz's part, right, to advocate for Ruth and Naomi to this kinsman redeemer, that here he is at work setting the groundwork for the coming of the Christ, right? Here he is continuing the promise and progeny uh, that he has done through Abraham. Uh, He is working towards the patriarch and King David, right? He is about to secure uh, in great extent the land of Israel and make it the promised land that he swore to the fathers of the Israelite faith, right? So you see all of this, uh, you know, t- tons of the keeping of the promises happening through this one thing, this one small thing happening in the gigantic land of the Sinai, you know, to bring about all this sort of stuff. It really is, like we were talking about earlier, quite beautiful. Uh, you know, it can't be overlooked, shouldn't be overlooked by Christians because we're in the place of Ruth, right? That's where we are, right? We're in the place of Ruth and Boaz. Uh, our lives are mostly mundane. Our lives are in the nitty gritty of things, dealing with kids and all the other aspects of stuff. And so the beauty of this is is just in that. So hmm. the the elders who are there upon witnessing all of this, everything's sealed, signed, sealed, delivered. Everything's right. done. Yeah. They give a blessing then to Boaz and yes. Ruth, and and I, I wonder they may not realize just how true their words were, or or how right. much oh, they're yeah. really saying there. So th- that's yeah. I think one of the key parts of this text. Take us into that blessing there at yeah. the end of this section. It is really loaded, and you wonder if this is just a general cultural thing you know right. uh i've i've interacted with some hebrew uh groups and 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 folks uh, uh that i've talked to and you hear these cultural statements you know that uh, there are these these names that that they will share with each other you know that are these uh, tokens of great endearment to each other like daughter of zion and son of abraham and you know these these various terms that that express deep faithfulness and abiding endearment based on uh, your faith and all sorts of stuff. So you wonder if this is just a general statement, right? That that for the for everybody that's there, this is sort of the general blessing that you would give, right? The ironic benediction sort of thing. You know, everybody knows that the the divine service in a Lutheran church is going to close in a particular way. Uh, you know, whether you stand up or sit down for the closing hymn is the big question mark. But everybody's going to get that ironic benediction, right? Um, so you wonder if this is just a general cultural blessing, right? A general cultural benediction for for somebody who's gone through this process, who's redeemed, uh, you know, uh, in particular now redeemed a family and is going to be married to this woman to continue on the tradition of a, a lineage that would die otherwise. And so when they say these things like, "May this, uh, may your house." May this woman, may the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, 
may you act worthily in Ephrathah and, and be renowned in Bethlehem and may the house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give to you by this young woman, right? So like this giant blessing that's given here by the elders is just, it's loaded, right? It's pregnant with, with uh, all sorts of promise, whether they know it or not, right? Uh, they, whether they know it or not, this is the lineage quite literally of the promise, right? That happens through Leah, right? That happens through Rachel, that happens through Sarah, like the, the, the women of the patriarchs, the, 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 the matriarchs of the faith, whom, whom God works through to deliver the promises and to deliver the promised children. Now, uh, Ruth is one of these women, right? Now, Ruth is one of these women who stands in line with the matriarchs of the Israelite faith. And uh, so they, you know, did they know, did they not know, who knows, right? But what, whether they knew or whether they didn't know, this is great uh, loaded terminology here, which helps us see the significance of what comes at the end, which we haven't got to yet, which is that that through Ruth comes David. So, Right. And, and just briefly to point out as well that the women that are mentioned, much like Ruth, are unexpected women to be involved i mean you've got rachel and leah who are who are sisters fighting over the affections of the husband you've got the account of tamar and judah which is one of those spots that you skip over that in sunday school for the kids usually because of i mean so and ruth fits in perfectly with that here's here's a foreigner who's going to be included in the life of christ yep so let's let's keep reading here so we get to the rest of the text ruth 4 verse 13 So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And that is the conclusion of the book of Ruth. So two parts there, Pastor Belts, the the actual wedding and the consummation of Boaz and Ruth, the birth of their son, and then the genealogy that gets us to David. So take us into the the wedding, and which, I mean, is not much. It's just a verse. But the consummation, the bearing of the son, and how that then affects Naomi particularly. Yeah, and so, and in, I mean, the, the bulk of this, uh, verses 13 uh, and following, 13 to 16, has to do with this second blessing that, now the elders have given a blessing to Boaz with regards to his redemption, and now the women give a blessing to Naomi, right? They give a blessing to Naomi at the birth of the son, right? Which is this interesting thing. You know, you would think that the blessing would be to Ruth, but the entire circumstance around this has really been around the, re- the redemption of Naomi's heritage and lineage, which with which Ruth is a part of, right? Which Ruth has come into. And so this great blessing to Naomi has to do with the fact that God has provided a son, right? God has provided this son through whom the lineage is continued, right? The pr- this promised lineage is continued. And this blessing is beautiful in the sense that this redemption has brought about life, 
right? And, uh, you know, even more loaded in pregnant terms is, may the name of Obed be renowned in Israel, right? And now we're, we're a bunch of white people in America reading a text about a Jewish guy from 5,000 years ago now, probably, and, and the, the, the great-grandfather of David, right? And we're like, oh, man, this is the best, right? This is the best stuff, right? We're learning about the birth of Obed, right? It's not just that his name is renowned in Israel. His, rena- his name is renowned wherever God-fearing people have it, right, throughout generations, right? So the blessing is even better than what these women even thought about it as. It's not just renowned in Israel. It's renowned beyond Israel, Right. Uh, and he's going to restore life. Right. The word he's going to nourish you in your old age. Right. Uh, all these things are such rich terms about how God is such a good gift giver to provide not simply, you know, pictures. Right. Not simply photo ops for a grandmother, for a new baby boy. Right. But all of the things that are going into what's being taken care of here by God and the redemption that he's worked through Boaz and Ruth, right, and for Naomi, and for her lineage, and for God's progeny through them, right? So one of the things that I wanted to bring up here, too, which I didn't have on my notes, which is this gives us a great image of how we are to treat not simply the birth of children, right, as gifts of God, as these things that nourish and extend our lives, as these things that restore life, right, as these things that nourish us in old age, right? Everybody talks about children this way, right? We all, you know, uh, you know, this is why old congregations that have a bunch of old people in them always lament the fact that there aren't children in them, right? This is what, this is what folks want in a church. They want children in a church to see life and to nourish life, right? Which is really, really right. However, you could also extend this to aspects like baptism, not simply the the giving of a child, but the giving of life in general, right? A baptism is just as nourishing for a congregation to see on an infant, to see that the heritage of faith is continuing now through another small child. These children aren't just here to be eye candy for us. They're not here to make us feel good about the fact that our churches are going to die, right? These children exist here as a as this steadfast promise from God that he's going to continue the lineage of faithfulness through people that come after us, which for old folks— ought to uh, give them a lot of humility, right? They are not the end of the church, right? They should see themselves in light of this. They had their time as members of the church, as leaders of the church. They've been given a portion of this by God, and their time comes to an end sooner or later, right? Just like your time as a pastor and my time as a pastor will come to an end. We can't drive this, we can't make this thing drive forever. We've got to give up the keys sooner or later. And we can either do it kicking and screaming, or we can in humility thank God for the time that we've had and see the life that he extends and continues through these natural means, through the means of baptism and through the consequences of human interactions, right? And we can cherish them for what they are, which here, this promise to these women really extends that to us in a lot of ways, that through the giving of children, through the natural means, through the giving of children to Ruth and Naomi, through the giving of children by God to our congregations, he's extending this life-nourishing, beautiful gift so that we can hold on to it and thank God and go away in peace, right? Just like Simeon and Luke. Right, I can die now happy because I've held on to this great good gift. That's almost like what uh, these women are cherishing to Naomi here now. Now you can die with all the blessings of God because he's nourishing you even in in your old age by the giving of this gift. And so uh, I find this blessing just way more tremendous than the elder's blessing earlier. Right. Um, And then, uh, you know, Naomi takes up the child, right, in verse 16, just like, you know, there's so much overlap here with Simeon and the Christ child. Mm 
she takes up the child in her lap and uh, became his nurse. And, you know, she loves this child and she takes care of this child and all these uh, all these things happen. And then we get this, you know, of course, the lineage that goes to Obed. Uh, to, to David, which gives us a lot of uh, of stuff too to think about. So. Well, sure. And so, Pastor Bruce, we got just about seven minutes here on the morning, and I, I do want to make sure we talk a little bit about the genealogy. Yeah. You know, in in our in our context, we tend to breeze past the genealogies without thinking about them too much. That's right. The Book of Ruth ends with it, and maybe it seems right. like a bit of of like, well, that was that was a lame ending, but this is actually, I think, the point of of Ruth is to tell us. This is the lineage of David, and ultimately, as we've been saying, the lineage of, of Christ. So tell us a little bit about this genealogy here. Yeah, it's. I mean, the genealogy is significant, and just I don't have to say much just because of exactly what you said. We get this snapshot of the way that God in his providence has been ordering the lineages of man to bring about the conception of David, finally. The story of Ruth is this, you know, if you want to see the entire narrative of God's salvation as like a big story arc, you get this drop-in point in Ruth where you get, you know, sort of this uh, scene in the midst of a wider ongoing narrative about the specifics about how God does this on a daily basis. And in the midst of that, you know, you see he's been at work through Perez and Hezron and uh, Aminadab and Nashon and all these guys, Salmon. He's been at work throughout, throughout all this time. And now through Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, we have Obed, right, and Obed and Jesse and David, right? And it's no coincidence that Ruth has put where Ruth is in, in relation to 1 Samuel, which is the, you know, the beginnings and the origins of the nation of Israel as a whole and also the person of David, right? Uh, so you have this sort of setting the table for this next uh, uh, event in God's salvation, in the story of God's salvation, how he's making things right in the creation. You know, he's tried it through uh, the flood didn't work you know plan 1a you know this makes this always makes the reformed people really nervous right plan 1a the flood didn't work right then plan 1b is abraham and a lineage right and a lineage of faith and a promise right that'll work right god's gonna make that work and that's where we're at right now we're in the midst of this story of god's redemptive act through abraham and the seed of abraham and so now we have that really ramping up in samuel which is just an excellent book just a ton of stuff in samuel but this uh this uh, genealogy helps give us a primer as to, like you said, the entire aim of Ruth is simply to point out this moment. We didn't hear about this really with Perez. We didn't hear about this too much with Hezron. You know, we have snapshots of these here and there. But for whatever reason, this thing about Ruth and what takes place here with Boaz and Ruth and this whole story, this is why God ordered this to be in here so we could see all these things coming together for this moment, the ordinary everyday means by which God works his plans to bring about the savior of the world. So, yeah. And, and that's, I, I, I like to point this out when it comes to the old Testament, that this is really the story of the old Testament. It's what it's all about is this line yep. of the seed. And we, we mentioned very briefly the account of Judah and Tamar, just because the names come up here in that blessing right. given. And, and Judah and Tamar is found in Genesis 38, which is one chapter where really the narrative of Genesis is focusing on Joseph and how he ends right. up going as a slave to Egypt, and, and that ends up being Israel going to Egypt and all that. And right in the middle, right. you get this just strange account of Judah and Tamar and how through all, all kinds of breaking of the Sixth Commandment, there ends up being a child born to them. Well, That's right. What in the world is that doing there? That's the line of the Christ. And that's, right. and that's really the story of the Old Testament. And and Ruth, 
I think Ruth makes a little more sense as, well, what's that doing there? We, we get it a little more. But the point is, this is the line of Jesus. And that's, that's right. what the Old Testament is is trying to, to tell us about. Pastor Bells, we got about three minutes on the morning for response to that. Any any closing thoughts? Yeah, no, that that uh, the point about Judah and Tamar is a good and important point. A lot of Christians are mistaken in thinking that the line of Christ runs through Joseph, but it runs through Judah, right? That's a, that's a really overlooked aspect of the Old Testament narrative is that the line of Abraham runs through Judah because he was the faithful brother out of all the brothers, right? Now, Joseph was, faith, was faithful, but for whatever reason, God set his sights on Judah, and uh, God gets to do that because God, he gets to pick and choose whoever he wants, right? We, I just preached on that text this last Sunday with regards to God's election of uh, in Romans chapter 9 because we had a baptism that God chooses Jacob, not Esau, in the womb before anybody had done anything, right? Just to show that God gets to choose whoever he wants. And everybody thinks, oh, it, you know, like, oh, it's, it was definitely Joseph. He was the really faithful guy. He was the guy that was helping save Israel. He was the guy that that, that forgave the brothers. Obviously, it was him that the line of the Christ came through. And I was like, no, it's, it was Judah. It was this like this really dicey scene, you know, like that's going on with Judah and Tamar. And like, that's the way God decided to, to have it out, you know, for the, the lineage of the Christ. And uh, that is, again, another reminder that God works in these ways that, that sometimes offend the prudish sensibilities of people. And that is an important thing to be reminded of, is that God is the Redeemer, right? God is the one who, who makes the choices. God is the one who is God, and we are not God. And when we set ourselves up to be gods is when we believe that we know better than God about how he should brought things about. But the story of the scriptures exists to humble us and to, to allow us to submit to the story of the kingdom and to live under it and not under our own pretenses and you know presumptions and prudishness, right? But we submit to God and his word and live under it and live under him and his kingdom, you know, not the other way around, right? God doesn't live under us in our kingdoms. Uh, he exerts his will and power over us, and he does it in ways and in times that we wouldn't expect, that we shouldn't expect, you know, perhaps, you know, maybe we shouldn't know about all the ways that he's working for our benefit, right? Uh, like you were saying earlier, who knows if Ruth and Naomi knew the the absolute extent to which God was going to work things out through them. They probably didn't know, and good for them, they should know, because it was it allowed them to love the moments that they were in as the good gifts that they were and not expecting something more, which is sort of what we were starting at at the beginning, which seems like a good way to end it, right? Just live in your daily vocation. Just live in your daily life. Just love what God has given you. And don't love it because God commands you to love it. Love it because this is what Jesus wants for you. This is what God has given to you, right? This is what Jesus wants for you is to love the good gifts that he's given you, mainly him, but by loving him and trusting him all the more, it allows you to see the things in your daily life as the good gifts that God wants you to just love and serve and hold on to. Pastor Sam Belts is the pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa, helping us this morning with Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Pastor Belt, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Thanks for going through the book of Ruth with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.